You know, I, um, I, I've enjoyed my study this summer in uh, the Minor Prophets. And actually, next week, we're going to make a one-week stop at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, if you want to read that. And then we're going to spend one week in Zechariah, interestingly. And we'll spend a week in Malachi. And then we'll be finished with this little study for the summer. But um, um, we're actually going to be in the Major Prophets with Ezekiel next week. But there's a, a common theme that we're kind of dealing with here. But I, I began to think about how important was the prophet Micah. Okay, well, I don't know what I was getting ready to say, but I think this is what I was getting ready to say. How important was the prophet Micah's message? That wasn't exactly a tongue twister. I don't know why I stumbled on it. How important was the prophet Micah's message? And we've been carving out several pieces of this, but I want you to go for just a minute. Uh, that I read this just a few days ago in my own devotional reading. In, in 5.2, how important was it? The message that Micah spoke in the middle of some of this doom and gloom. We're going to come kind of full circle today in, in uh, Micah 7 and hear of his message of hope. But here's part of the message of hope. Somebody read 5.2. Anybody got it? It's just a page back. Ephratha. How important was Micah's message? It was Micah that in the first couple of chapters of, of Ma the Gospel of Matthew, when, uh, when the Messiah is about to be born, okay? Um, actually, this came a, a, a few months after he was born, but it was the prophet Micah that when evil King Herod said to his satraps and his wise men, where's the Messiah to be born? They didn't even have to look it up. Well, the prophet Micah said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, go look for him there, you know. Okay, so um, it, among other things, this is an important component of this wonderful message of Micah. Now, um, um, let's talk for a minute about, uh, kind of just give you a little bit of a rolling background on chapter 7, and then we're going to get into it in a little bit. Uh, just We'll have Bob read a little bit, and we'll, we'll get moving here. Um, uh, the part of this chapter that comes just before today's lesson begins on a really distressing note. So if you're in chapter 7, look at verse 1. He begins with, woe is me. What does that mean? It's not good, right? He's feeling bad about, about his plight. Now look at 7-2. Um, the godly person is perished from the land. There's no upright person among men. All of them wait in line for bloodshed. Each of them hunts one another with a net. So it's kind of the idea that the faithful have been swept from the land. And then verse 3, he gives kind of the background. This is interesting. I've never seen this anywhere in Scripture before. I've never really thought about this concept. But in, in verse 3, look what it Concerning evil, both hands do it well. They, people are so evil they become ambidextrous in doing evil. It's just kind of an interesting thought, right? Kind of a unique thought. This is how bad it's become. I can do. I can sin equally with my left hand or my right hand. That's it's kind of how Micah feels. How bad things have gone. And then, uh, by the time we get to where we're beginning here, 
there is kind of a hopeful note that sounds. He, all of this thought and all of this kind of concern leads him to the prayer that's in the text that we're going to read today. So when he talks about asking, um, um, asking for something here, he's going to be addressing God directly. Now, Bob, do you mind to go to verse 14 and read down through 17? Chapter 7. Okay, now, the, the picture here that he's asking for uh, that I want us to start with is this idea asking God to shepherd his people. Now, that's going to come really natural to God, and, and Micah really doesn't need to ask him to do that, but he's pleading here for some shepherding. Now, the question that I left and the word that goes in your blank, first word that goes in your blank is the word shepherd, is the picture of God as a shepherd an outdated concept. Isn't it interesting, and I occasionally would have asked this question of some of our pastoral care classes at MACU, is the picture of a pastor as a shepherd an outdated concept? Some people think it is. And yet, Jesus in John 10 identifies himself as not the good CEO, not as the good rancher, but the good shepherd, right? God identifies himself. Uh, well, David identifies him in his prayer in Psalm 23, one of the most important passages of Scripture in all the Old Testament and the New Testament, as the Lord is my what? Shepherd. So uh, Micah here is, is invoking this idea of God as shepherd, and he, um, and he addresses here, he, he pleads with God to take care of his flock, which is the nation, all right? Now, he, he um, refers here to the territory that sometimes we call the Transjordanian region. Now, you can impress your friends with that little biblical term. Transjordanian region. Where would that be? On the, uh, on the other side of the Jordan. It, it's exactly what Ellie said, I'm sure. Yeah, on the other side of the Jordan from Jerusalem, okay, from, from Judah. It's on the other side of the Jordan. Remember when they occupied the land back in the book of Joshua, a few of the tribes settled on the other side. They asked to be, because was, there was a reason for that. We're going to talk about it in a minute, the reason he invokes that here. They wanted to settle over there, and Joshua said, okay, you can come back here, but you're going to go with us to help us occupy the land. Then you can come back across the river. Okay. Now, in particular here, he uh, invokes here Bashan and or Bashan and Gilead. Uh, let them feed there. Um, these these towns are on the other side of the Jordan in um, in the in the uh, nations of or in kind of the, the the province of Gad and Manasseh, which are two of those kind of. Um, places that got parceled out to, to particular families, the families of Gad, which is where we get the term Egad, I suppose. 
And Manasseh was who? One of Joseph's boys, okay? And he gets, he gets a, a, a parcel of the land too. Well, what ended up happening is these guys that went back across the Jordan, the reason they went over there is because the land they went to was really verdant. It was really productive, Okay. You ever been in a place, and my mother would, go to, would come to Kentucky. She'd come to the bluegrass when I was living there, and we'd go visit some farmer's farm, and she'd, she was really interested in the dirt, having grown up here. She was really interested in the dirt, and she'd say, you can grow anything in that dirt. You know, and it's true. It's true. Uh, all we had was you know, sod bust and clay to deal with here, right? But So there was this wonderful, productive land. And so he's kind of referring here to, to a land uh, of abundance here. And he's um, um, kind of wistfully saying this because that land is now under Syrian control. And, um, and, and uh, Micah's not happy about that. You ever long for the good old days? When you say the good old days, what are you thinking of? Younger days. Okay, younger days. You know, I woke up with my hamstring stretched from pulling weeds yesterday, and I sure wish for those younger days, that's for sure. What are you wishing for when you wish for the younger days, for the good old days? Uh, maybe it's before 2007, you know, before the Great Recession of 2007. I don't know. It, I think it's interesting. My dad and mom referred a lot to um, the good old days, but then they would talk about living through the Depression. I'm thinking, how could any of those days have been good? You know? Uh, when I think of the good old days in my life, it's really interesting. I remember two things, Harry. I remember, um, I don't know that I met you in these days, but I was working across the street from you. With Bob Anderson, it improved insulation. I was 17 years old, driving a truck for Bob and, and kind of running his warehouse. And I remember a year later, a year and a half later, I was working at the bank. And I had a tie on. And that's what I kind of wished for because I was an accounting student in those days. And I remember working until 11 or 12 o'clock at night trying to balance the bank. And I would think often back to Bob, working for Bob Anderson across the street from you, thinking, you know what? I had a lot better than I thought. I wore jeans and a, and a chambray shirt to, to work every day, and a, you know. But I, got, I could predict when I got off of work. I never could predict that at the bank, you know. Never knew when we were going to get balanced and get to go home. But don't we think often of the good old days? I, honestly, I think of my seminary experience, three and a half years, the hardest years of my life, as the good old days. Rhonda and I got closer during those three years than, we've ever, than we were previously. I got... I, Spent more time with my kids in some ways than I had in the five years of ministry previously. And yet we had nothing. We put baloney on a credit card one time, you know? <laughs> and yet sometimes, Pat, I think of those as the good old days. Isn't that nuts? How, how twisted are we? Well, the truth is, the truth is, um, uh, the good old days for some people can sometimes be the not so good old days for others. And so Micah is praying for uh, kind of a deliverance here, a settling of the, of the issue, a, a balancing of the scale, a plea on behalf of the people of God with a promise of deliverance here. Now, so he calls out to God to shepherd his people. Now, he... Um, He's going to say here, I, I believe verse 15 is saying something like, 
he's referring to as in the days when you when you came out from the land of Egypt. So he, he's kind of dealing with the people and their remembrance of the great experience of coming across the Red Sea. And, um, and he's going to deal here with the idea. He's going to plant this idea that God has plans to do even greater wonders than at the Red Sea crossing. He wants to do greater wonders than even the Red Sea crossing. Now go with me. Take just a minute and go to Luke 9. Okay, it's going to be to the right just a little bit. Okay, Luke 9. And let's hear what Jesus says about this. If somebody beats me there, read verse 30 and 31 out of Luke 9. I want you to kind of look at, by the way, what's the scenario here? It's the Mount of Transfiguration, okay? And um, Elijah's up there, Moses is there, Jesus is there, and the inner three of the 12 are there watching all this. And it's so impressive that Peter wants to just stay. You remember that deal? Okay. Now, in verse 31 that Cindy read, there's a word that I want us to drill down on. It's the word departure. What's he talking about? He's talking about his departure from the earth. What would that require before he could go back to heaven? It requires a death and in his case, a resurrection, right? And so he's talking about that. Now the word departure that's translated in our English Bible, is that what you have? I've got... Okay, I don't think it's the same in the Bible that I'm reading. I think it's a different word. That word departure is the word that's translated in the Old Testament. You ready? Exodus. Isn't that interesting? God is about to do for them. And by the way, one of the things that astounds me here is the prophets will never see it come to pass, even though they're convinced of it. God is going to do something that will not only rival the Exodus, but it will be greater than. Jesus refers to it, uses the Exodus word here, even when he's talking to Moses and, and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's this idea that his departure. Now, if... The original Exodus, and I, I've said to you before, and I said it, I think a minute ago, that uh, if the Exodus was the it was the Fourth of July for the Israelite people, it was it was the biggest thing that they marked every year, and still is. The release from the bondage in Egypt and slavery of Egypt. What will this second Exodus mean? Well, really, it means the same thing. It's a release from bondage to sin. <laughs> I see a few kind of knowing looks on your face. Yeah, I remember. Uh, there was a time in my life when I was in bondage, and now I'm free. 
at what Jesus is going to, is going to accomplish at the cross and at the empty tomb will release us. Michael will never see that, but he knows it's coming. He doesn't know all the details. By the way, he does know the details where the Messiah is going to be born. I find that intriguing from 5600 BC, you know. Think about that for just a minute. The crossing of the Red Sea, the door, the, the blood on the doorpost, and the passing by of the death angel, all that, that was the number one thing that they marked every year. They had feast to, that surrounded it. Jesus celebrated it. There will come a day when that one will be that feast, that celebration, that meaning, rich with meaning, will be superseded by your deliverance, my deliverance, my exodus, my departure from the bondage of sin. It's pretty beautiful if you think about it. That's kind of what Micah's kind of getting caught up in a little bit here. And um, in Ephesians 3, Paul's going to, he's not thinking about that specifically when he talks about um, how, uh, how superseded all these are. He's able to do immeasurably more than we can even ask or think. I mean, that's what he's going to refer to. Okay? Now, let's go to, uh, let's go to verse 16. Yeah, Joanne. Uh, the idea was, Peter just wanted to stay up on the mountain. This was a, the coolest thing he's ever seen, Joanne, by then. It's the, Jesus and, and two of the great heroes of faith of Peter's and everybody else's in, in the Jewish nation were with him, talking with him. Peter, James, and John are up there watching. And they're, they're saying, Peter is saying specifically, this is the best thing I've ever experienced. Can we just stay here? Let's build three shelters, one for you, one for the other two guys, and we'll just hang out here for a while. But it's down in the valley where they're put to a test. Well, all of us have kind of had those mountaintop experiences, haven't we? Now, um, there's an interesting reference here. It kind of goes back to the Exodus a little bit. In verse 16, uh, it says, Nations will see and be ashamed. Now, John, I've asked you to go, if you would be kind of our Exodus uh, expert today. If you'll go to 15, we're going to kind of hang out there a little bit. But um, um, this is the middle of what John's going to read. He's going to read four verses from the middle of Moses and Miriam's song, okay, when they got to the other side of the Red Sea and the Egyptians had been drowned. I almost said drowned. They've been a drowned. Yeah, I almost, almost said that. You know, John, that's probably how they say it in Texas. No, no okay. <laughs> they, 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 them Egyptians was a drowned. Yeah. No, and, uh, um, it's the Kentucky candy you brought me, Jim, that's making me this way. Um, after that whole experience, Moses and Miriam stop on the other side, on the other bank. And they sing this wonderful song of praise to God. 13 through 16 is right in the middle of it. Listen to what they say about the enemies, about the Egyptians. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide 
nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will bring the people of Hermistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you buy pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling. The sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. Thank you, John. Now, notice he mentions the Philistines, he mentions the Moabites, he mentions the Edomites, and then as if to kind of catch everybody else, he just says, and the rest of the Canaanites. And he says, what's going to happen with them as uh, the idea as we walk free out of Egypt, as, as we cross the Jordan River? It, the idea that Micah picks up here on is the idea that surrounding nations will have to put their hand over their mouth. Astounded. And literally, the, the, the concept in, in Micah's uh, teaching here is that they will be ashamed. And they will notice when they look at the power of God, they're going to notice at their lack of power. They'll be too embarrassed the surrounding nations in Moses' day were kind of too embarrassed to speak. You know, the, the reference that I think of is when um, the spies went to Jericho before it fell and were, um, were harbored by Rahab. You remember that? And when they finally got to have a, a private conversation with her, um, she asked them to kind of remember her when... When God came into, when God's people came into the land, because she said, you remember that whole deal? She said, we've heard about it. We know about your God already. You ever done that? Can you imagine the, the enemies of God it, today? Today. Those that we read about in the paper. Can you imagine there's coming a day Got it? That's kind of the image here. Now, let's go on to verse 16 because I want, I want to get through this section and then we're going to turn it. Micah says, spare turn to hope. I want you to compare with me what his attitude in verse 1 and his attitude in verse 7 and even in 17. Uh, let's read 17 again. They will lick the dust like a serpent, the reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses to the Lord our God. They'll come in dread and they will be afraid before you. Now, you remember how this... Chapter started, we talked about it. Micah says, woe is me, verse 1. By verse 7, look. But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now i got to ask this. Micah has somehow moved... From woe is me to my God will hear me. And he's beginning to look at the world and his plight and the plight of his people and the people he loves more with faith and hope than with despair. What about you and me? I, I, I think this is a message for me. 
Because I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I tend to look at lots of things these days, let's be honest, including politics. And I want to go, oh, man, has it ever been any worse? That's Micah verse 1. How am I going to get to the point? How can I make the shift to where Micah ends this book with future and faith and hope toward this world? How can I move from a woe is me position or a woe are us, I suppose, to a my God will hear me position? Like in verse 7. I think... That's one of the things that I've, I've got to kind of gain from this. Now, we're going to see some things here as we go into 18, 19, and 20, and then we'll finish up. So, Bob, can I come back to you and read 18, 19, and 20? Okay, what's the question that he asked? It's a really good question. Who is like God? Is that it? Who is like God? Say it again, Julie. Okay, who is a God like you? Now, it's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? There's nobody. All right? Okay, but hang on to that for just a minute. Here's, that's the question. Okay, and this question is, is, is so noteworthy for a couple of reasons. First of all, Micah's name. Micah's name in Hebrew literally meant who is like the Lord. Uh, Micah is, you know, in, in, is kind of writing his own name in the text of his oracle here. Who is like the Lord? Okay, so it's noteworthy for that reason. But even more importantly, he, he's noting here, all through this chapter, God's great wonders at the Exodus. And he's comparing them to what's yet to come. John, I've asked you to kind of camp out in Exodus uh, 15. Would you read verse 11, 15, 11? Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? This is not a new question. Who is like you? Uh, now, by the way, those who ask it in Exodus 15, 11, had just seen the Red Sea open up and part. They walked through on dry ground, and then they saw it close back, wiping out their enemies. And they're on the other side saying, who is like you? My challenge and by the way, one of the things that makes Micah a hero is Micah knows about that, but it's been hundreds of years ago. It's been a 900 or so years ago before Micah's day. And Micah is saying, I know that God is going to do that kind of thing again. And what I've got to deal with is standing on this side of the Red Sea parting. How can I have faith to see what's going to happen then on the other side? God... And the, one of the things I've just got to recite over and over is, who is like you? Okay? So, that's kind of what they're dealing with here. 
um, these great wonders? Um, the, the answer is no one's like him. And the, in, if, if we kind of get to thinking about it, God's desire, the answer to the question is God's desire is that he wants to save the nation. That's part of his nature. God's desire is he wants to save you. You notice in the, uh, toward the end of this passage, he's going to talk about forgiveness here. We're going to apply it in just a minute. Not only does he want to reach out to you, but he can. He can do whatever he wants to do. He has the ability. There is none like him. He can perform wonders then, and he can do it now. Okay, I'm going to tell you an embarrassing story of myself. I got an airplane the other day, and um, I was really homesick, but not necessarily for Oklahoma City. Does that make sense? I was homesick sick for three little toe-headed kids, okay, just, and I could hardly talk about them now. And, you know, they don't live here anymore, and that's the bane of my existence these days. And I set myself up for this, okay? I've, I've got my iPad out, and i got pictures of them on there. And then I dialed up, and you don't have to like this song if you don't want to, but I love this song, and I like this artist, a guy by the name of Rob Thomas, who was the front guy for Matchbox 20 back in the day. And he's kind of got, he's on the radio about every time you turn it on. And he does a wonderful little ballad called... Um, um, I call it Small Wonders. I'm not sure what the name, I think it is called Small Wonders. But anyway, I'm listening to this, and he, it's just nostalgic and wonderful, and I'm looking at pictures of my kids on my iPad, and I'm blubbering my head off. <laughs> and I'm, think, I'm sitting next to two people in, in, on the airplane, and I'm thinking, they're thinking this guy's losing his mind. <laughs> you know what? God still does small wonders. And he does great wonders. You remember when George Beverly Shea, right before Billy Graham would speak, he would sing a song that I've heard my dad's group sing all my life. The wonder of wonders that thrills my soul <laughs> is the wonder that God loves me. You remember that? He's still forgiving. He's still caring. And I'm stealing my own thunder, so we better move on. Here we go. All right, now... So he uses two word pictures here to describe God's forgiveness in verse 19. Uh, don't, don't miss what he says here. He'll again have compassion on us. He'll tread our iniquities underfoot. Now he's talking there about, um, you can just write in your, in your blanks there, treading underfoot, okay? Here's what he's going to do with forgive, in forgiveness. He's going to take your sin and he's going to tread them underfoot like a cigarette. I couldn't think of another analogy there. I want you to go with me to Hebrews 2.8, okay? Because there's an image that he uses here in Hebrews 2.8. Somebody go there, please, and get us there, because I won't find it in time. All right? Hebrews 2.8. Got it? Read it, Stella. Well, it's wonderfully poetic. You're right. Mm-hmm. You put everything under his feet. That's the image. Everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject 
He's put everything under his feet. My seminary professor talked at length about the Lord making a footstool of his enemies. You know? Triumphant. Now, what I want to make sure that we understand here in Micah and in the book of Hebrews, that the issue of enemies has come up here, and we've got to kind of understand this. And I think you and I have a tendency to think that the enemy of God's people is them, whoever them is. But I want to, I want to submit to you that the enemy of God's people has never been them And the enemy of God's people today is not them. The enemy of God's people is sin. And what does God do with sin? He forgives it. It's under his feet. It's buried in the dust. Second word picture, same idea. Is the idea here that he uses in verse 19 of casting sin in the sea. Now, John, I gotta come back to you. Because remember now, in the terms of their enemies, they're still thinking about the ites. And they're also thinking about the Egyptians. John, read verse 4 and 5, would you from Exodus 15? Who's it talking about? Them, the Egyptians, cast in the sea. Right? They love that thought. What I want you to kind of capitalize in here, what I think Micah is saying is that at the second Red Sea crossing, at the second Exodus, your sins are going to be buried in the sea. Now, somebody once wrote, they've expanded on Micah's portrayal by adding that when God casts iniquities into the depths of the sea, he also puts up a sign that says, no fishing. Okay? Don't we have a tendency to want to go back there? And the Lord says, no, it's buried under my foot in the middle of the sea. Again, I say the enemy, enemy of God's people is not them. It's sin. The good news Oh, this is wonderful good news. He's buried it. He's taken care of it. In his wonderful mercy and forgiveness, is there anything like it? And so Micah, in the very ending of this, uh, uses history to recall God's faithfulness. He talks about Jacob, and he talks about uh, Abraham, and talks about the promises of, of, of God to Abraham. You remember those three promises? He promised him land, promised him um, uh, offspring like the stars in the sky, like the sand in the seashore, right? But those weren't the most important of the promises. What was the third promise? That all peoples would be blessed by your seed. Micah hasn't, Micah's saying, that day is still coming here. God's promises have come to pass, even though Micah never saw the day of Jesus, you and I have. He's going to look back at the Red Sea crossing and say, man, wasn't that wonderful? But what he's getting ready to do will be matchless. This idea of the matchless mercy of God in the person work of Jesus Christ. Well, it was right after the 9-11 attacks and Max Lucado prepared a prayer to offer encouragement to the people and 
perspective at the time of great distress throughout the U.S. and really through the world. And he wrote a prayer that I want to read to you. He titled the prayer, Do It Again, Lord. Here's the prayer. And so we come to you. We don't ask you for help. We beg you for it. We don't request it. We implore it. We know what you can do. We've read the accounts. We've pondered the stories, and now we plead, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Remember Joseph? You rescued him from the pit. You can do the same for us. Do it again, Lord. Remember the Hebrews in Egypt? You protected their children from the angel of death. We have children too, Lord. Do it again. And Sarah, remember the her prayers? You heard them. Joshua, remember his fears? You inspired him. The women, woman at the, the women at the tomb, you resurrected their hope. The doubts of Thomas, you took them away. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. You changed Daniel from a captive into a king's counselor. You took Peter from fisherman and made him Peter the apostle. Because of you, David went from leading sheep to leading armies. Do it again, Lord. For we need counselors today, Lord. We need leaders. Do it again, dear Lord. So you can put that in your blank. Maybe our prayer should be, Lord, do it again. Maybe our prayer is part of it is to recognize that Micah didn't utter that kind of a specific prayer, but our text today reveals the Lord's promise that declares, I will do it again. The God who had the ability to destroy oppressions of the body by, uh, by drowning them in the sea also has the ability to hurl all of our iniquities, our sins, into the depths of the sea. God isn't only willing and able to do this, but he is going to do it. And one of these days, you and I are going to recognize that he has already done this in our day. I need to live in the context of God's matchless and wonderful mercy. There's none like him. You remember we've said that. There's no forgiveness like his forgiveness. So, my encouragement to you is to live like one who's been forgiven. To walk a different walk. Um, an old Church of God preacher by the name of E.E. E. Wolfram said, it's not how high you jump that matters, it's how straight you walk when you come back down. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? By the way, that wasn't in the notes. I heard that 40 years ago, and I still remember it. Bless you. I love being with you. We'll be in Ezekiel 18 next week, okay? See you. <laughs>